Welcome to the Biotech Pod, where we delve into the world of biotechnology and learn how we as students can break through. I'm Malak. And I'm Judy. And today we are so excited to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Gillies to the pod. Dr. Elizabeth Gillies is a professor in the Department of Chemistry and Chemical and Biochemical Engineering at the University of Western Ontario. Dr. Gillies leads a research program in smart materials and biomaterials, spanning from fundamental discoveries to applications with a focus on polymer chemistry. She's now collaborating with other research groups and exploring the applications of her materials in drug delivery, regenerative medicine, and agriculture. Again, we are so excited to welcome Dr. Gillies to the pod. So, Dr. Gillies, to get started, with someone of your distinctions and your awards and publications, could you perhaps choose some of your research projects and how would you explain those research projects to a grade 12 high school student? Okay, yeah, thanks for that question, Malek. So, we work in the field of polymers and for those that are, are not familiar with the term polymers, really this is just another name for plastics or often you know, in society, we call polymers plastics. And so, I mean, we can think about, about plastics being involved in, you know, food packaging, kids' toys, um, although polymers also include things, you know, like car tires and the soles of running shoes and things. Um, but specifically, we are primarily interested in polymers for biomedical applications. And a couple of areas that we are working on are drug delivery, and tissue engineering. Wow, yeah, that's a very interesting high-level summary. So I guess now we can dive into more details. So we know a lot of the projects at your lab are highly applicable in the field of uh, tissue engineering and drug delivery, as you also mentioned. Uh, so to students who are relatively new to these two fields, can you please give them some quick background and how does your research tie into these fields? Right, sure. So drug delivery really is a field that is aimed at addressing some of the challenging properties of drugs. Um, So for example, some drugs actually have very poor solubility, which makes it difficult to administer them into the body. And another very common problem with drugs is is the systemic side effects and toxicity. And, And that's because if we take a drug, you know, orally or, you know, as a pill, or inject it intravenously, then it tends to distribute everywhere in the body and not just going to the site that, you know, is desired for it to target the disease. And so drug delivery is a way in which we can package drugs up into polymer systems. And if we make our polymer systems dispersible in water, then that can help us a lot with administering the drugs. And we can also Um, use things like size and surface properties and introducing specific chemical functionalities on the drug delivery system to target the drugs specifically to the tissue or disease site that's needed. And then we can use chemistry also to, for example, trigger the system to release drugs selectively there. And so that can make the drug more effective and also reduce its side effects. Now the field of tissue engineering is really about trying to make tissues, you know, in the lab or in the body, using the body as a kind of bioreactor. And I guess this is aimed, you know, primarily at two two areas. I mean, the ideal long-term goal would be to be able to replace diseased organs and tissues and so have an alternative option for organ transplant, because we know that 
this is a very challenging area. There's lots of people waiting on transplant lists. There's not enough organs. Patients can also reject the organ if they're fortunate enough to receive it. Um, and even in the best case scenario, they're going to have to be on you know, immunosuppressive therapies for a long time. And so tissue engineering offers a potential where we could take the patient's own cells or potentially those of a donor and really grow them into a replacement organ, as I said, either in the lab or inside the human body. And then another area that's become really of interest for tissue engineering is being able to actually generate um, 3D models of organs that can be used to actually test drugs and therefore provide you know, a lot more accurate predictions of how the drugs will behave in the body in comparison to the traditional approach, which would really just involve 2D models um, you know, with cells growing on a cell culture plate, which is really not that representative of, of how they behave in the body. Um, and so polymers are needed in tissue engineering in order to provide basically a 3D support for the cells, because you can't generally just take the cells and inject them into the body. They will just diffuse everywhere away from the injection site. Um, or if you're trying to grow the tissue in the lab, then you need something that really provides that three-dimensional support um, so that the cells can you know, actually feel like they're in a mimic kind of, a, of the natural tissue. And so they'll behave in, in the desired way. That's super interesting. So I was wondering, where are we currently right now in terms of the progress of polymers in those two fields? Is there like a current application that is widespread or are we still kind of like in the breakthrough phase of it in terms of drug delivery and tissue engineering? Right. Well, I think, you know, they are at a little bit different phases. I would say in the clinic, probably drug delivery is a bit more advanced. Um, there are actually clinically used drug delivery products. And, you know, this can range actually, I guess we could consider, a, you know, slow release oral tablets to be kind of a form of drug delivery. And, and those exist for, for quite a few different drugs. Um, there are also anti-cancer drugs like Doxyl, which use drug delivery systems. In that case, it's a liposome. And there are quite a number of systems that are currently in clinical trials, and these are, are gradually being being approved. And, and a lot of these for, are for anti-cancer. There's also a clinically approved system for um, treating osteoarthritis pain and inflammation, um, which is a, a microparticle system that's injected into the joint. Um, so yeah, so drug delivery has definitely reached the clinic and it is a very active area of research as well to obtain again, more targeted release, more effective systems and, and to broaden it to a wider variety of drug types. I would say um, tissue engineering is, is a bit more at that breakthrough phase, really. Um, I mean, I think some of the things that are, are reaching the clinic are around wound healing, um, which is a little bit easier because it's almost sort of at the, you know, it's at the external side of the body. Um, there have been, though, a number of clinical trials looking at using um, kind of decellularized tissue scaffolds to to replace different organs. And, but overall, I'd say the field is much more at the clinical trial stage. And you know, this, this idea that we can create an artificial organ in the lab and implant it is still a little bit of a you know, wish list, longer term item. And I think for, for pharma, you know, again, there's a lot of interest in using these 3D models and that's sort of, a, again, a, an exciting breakthrough area. Yeah, that's super interesting. Thank you for all the detail about that. Now that we've kind of touched on a high level view of, you know, drug delivery and tissue engineering, 
let's take an even more microscopic approach on biomaterials and let's look even more at polymers. Can you tell us a little bit more about natural versus synthetic polymers and their role in biomedical applications? For instance, I believe one of your recent publications highlighted the synthesis of neutral water-soluble hydrogels for cell encapsulation. What made this specific synthetic polymer more superior for this biomedical application? Right. So, so tackling the first part, I mean, there are definitely a lot of polymers that occur naturally. So people may not think about it this way, but actually, I mean, DNA and RNA are, are polymers, actually. They're polymers of nucleotides. Um, and you know, proteins are also polymers of amino acids, polysaccharides, you know, like starch and, and things like that are also polymers. And so there are lots of naturally occurring polymers. Um, things like collagen and alginate have been extensively used in biomedical applications. And they do have some advantages in that they tend to be fairly well tolerated in the body. Um, they can mimic aspects of natural tissues because actually our, our natural tissues do contain a lot of these biopolymers and they tend to be degradable. But some challenges with these natural polymers is that often because they're natural, we're actually isolating them from natural sources and, and this process can be challenging. If they're from animal sources, then you have to really be sure to remove all the cells. And um, it also can be challenging to get exactly the same molar mass and properties each time. So, so those are some challenges with natural polymers. Um, synthetic polymers are things that are made in the lab industrially generally, and, and these are also quite common. In biomedical applications, I would say three of the quite common ones that are, are used you know, clinically would be polyethylene glycol and polylactic acid and polylactide glycolide. So just as an example, um, PLGA, the, the polylactyclocoglycolide, is used in degradable sutures for surgery. So again, lots of, of history in using these polymers. Um, and we can tune their properties quite a bit through synthesis um, as we make the polymers and incorporate different uh, chemical groups and things. So, so that's an advantage. But then sometimes the degradation behavior of these polymers is not really what we want it to be. They can be rather slow to degrade or in some cases too fast for some applications. And also they are recognized by the body often as being non-natural. And so sometimes that can lead to inflammation and other undesired things. Um, so one of the things that we've been working on in our lab is to try to combine aspects of natural biopolymers with those of synthetic polymers so that we can get things like biorecognition, but also get biodegradability and, and um, being able to really tune the properties. So, so polyester amides are one case of, of this that we're working on in the lab. So these polymers contain amino acids, which again are natural. We have lots of amino acids in the body and so our cells can recognize those, but then we use other synthetic components as well to really tune the properties um, of these systems. I think it's very interesting to see how we can maneuver certain parts of the uh, polymers. So I believe also in the same publication you mentioned about adding a cross-linking moieties on the uh, hydrogel to make it more water-soluble. In fact, it's actually the first one that's water-soluble for the uh, cell encapsulation, so it's quite impressive. <laughs> so on that note, what are some of the uh, polymerization or aesthetic techniques that you used in your lab? And um, what are some of the parameters that you often use to characterize the properties of the uh, synthetic polymers you made? 
Yeah, we, we do do a lot of chemistry in the lab. And I would say something that we do, which may be different than other people working in the biomaterials area is we do make a lot of custom polymers. And often this comes right down to making custom monomers. And so monomers are the, so a polymer is essentially a big long chain of repeating units that is composed of monomers. And so we make those monomers ourselves so that we can really engineer in, in different properties. And so once we've made the monomers, we use a number of different polymerization methods to make the polymers. So one approach is, is called a step growth polymerization. And so this usually comes from, well, it, it can be in, done in a number of different ways. But one common way is that we would have a monomer with two functional groups and let's call those A. So that monomer has A and A on each side of it. And then we have another monomer that has a different functional group, let's call it B. And so this monomer has two B groups on each side and A and B will react with each other in the polymerization. And so if we take lots of AA and lots of BB, we combine them and we form bonds between those monomers and that's called the step growth polymerization. And then another mechanism that we use is something called chain growth polymerization. And this mechanism is kind of different where we have a monomer and once we initiate that polymerization, with something like a free radical, for example, we make that monomer reactive. It reacts with the next monomer to generate a new radical, let's say, and then it reacts with the next monomer and so on. And so basically it grows the big long chain sort of in a, in a elongation process. And so once we've made these polymers in the lab, of course, it's very important to know exactly what we've made. And, and of course that's critical for biomedical applications because if you were wanting to have something injected into your body, you would want to be sure that the quality control is very good and that you have you know, pretty much exactly the same thing each time. I mean, this is equivalent to quality control for any pharmaceutical product. Um, so we do in the lab, I mean, a number of techniques, but one common one is NMR spectroscopy. And so this gives us kind of a molecular map of what we've got in terms of content and, and sequence. And then the other important aspect that controls a lot the properties of polymers is their molar mass. So basically how long the polymer chain is, how many monomers are, are strung together to make that chain. And to characterize that, we use a technique called size exclusion chromatography. And basically this allows us to determine the, the size of the polymer. And so those are the two main techniques. And then depending what we're doing, we may employ other ones as well, like mechanical property measurements and things. Awesome. Just to kind of go back to the polymerization or synthesis techniques, I know you spoke about kind of like step growth and chain growth. Are they for different applications or does one of them like have a specific payoff or is one more favorable than the other? It really comes down to the chemical structure of the polymer. So just the, the structure, for example, of the polyester amides, we make those by that step growth sort of AABB mechanism because of the, the structure and how the polymers are, are composed. Um, but some other polymers that just contain essentially one monomer repeating all down the chain, those are more amenable to the, the chain growth polymerization. Got it. Awesome. So continuing kind of on the topic of polymers, because there's just so much to talk about here. We also noticed that some of your research projects are related to a type of polymer called self-immolative polymers. Could you tell us a little bit more about this specific type of polymer? What are some characteristics that make it suitable for the investigations that your team has going on? Yeah, so one of the, the key things that we are working on in our lab is 
being able to really control and potentially trigger the degradation of, of the polymers. So as I mentioned, a common feature of the synthetic polymers that are used often in biomedical applications like the polyesters that I mentioned for sutures is that they do degrade, but they degrade very slowly. And, and you know, this is fine for something like sutures, but for other applications like drug delivery, you may be able, you may want to be able to really control that better to have it slower or faster, or ideally to have them degrade in, in a certain tissue and let's say release the drug there. So something that we've been working on for a number of years, really since my lab started, is the self-immolative polymers, where basically what we do is we have a polymer backbone that is designed to be transiently stable, let's say, um, and we stabilize it temporarily using an end cap. So basically the end cap prevents the, the polymer from just depolymerizing or kind of unzipping back to monomer. But if we make this end cap something that responds to a particular stimulus, like let's say light or change in pH or a change in redox potential, then we can really engineer the polymer to degrade specifically under those conditions. And so that's the idea of self-immolative polymers. That's very interesting to hear. As a follow-up question, earlier you mentioned about how to deliver the drug to a specific tissue site is quite a problem. So do you foresee the use of self-immolative polymers in that field of precise targeting of the tissue site delivery? For example, packaging it as a pro-drug as part of the delivery process? Yeah, absolutely. That's the idea. So you would be able to administer something I guess there could be two scenarios. One is that you would, you would administer something systemically to the whole body. It would be targeted, let's say, to cancer tissue selectively based on its size. And then the self-immolative process would be designed to occur specifically in response to stimuli that are present in tumor tissue, um, like a change in pH or um, hypoxia, which is also common. Uh, so, so that would be one approach. And then the other approach would be that you could perhaps locally inject a kind of depot of drug. And then with a process, let's say something like, like arthritis that tends to have flares, it comes and glows, then perhaps you could use chemical stimuli associated with those flares to selectively release the, the drug when you have disease activity or an external stimulus, let's say like magnetic field or ultrasound or something like that. Wow, that's certainly interesting to know. So thank you for sharing these incredible insights on like the cool project that your lab have been working on. So as a segue, let's talk about more about your journey and how you get to where you are today. So regarding on the more personal side, our first question is what things initially motivated you to pursue research in academia and particularly in the field of polymer chemistry and biomaterial? Yeah, to be honest, when I went to university, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. So, you know, just for context, I, I think I registered as a psychology major in, in first year at, at Queens when I went there, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I also took chemistry and physics and math and tried to keep my doors open. And I became interested actually with a guest lecture in, in my first year of chemistry where the professor was talking about designing drugs for neurological diseases. And so that's actually what prompted me to go into chemistry. Um, I think I was attracted to science because I, I like to solve problems. And so, you know, maybe that's now why I'm sort of partly 
um, appointed to engineering, although I didn't major in that in, in undergrad. But yeah, I really like to solve problems and, you know, use science and, and logic to, to solve problems. And I guess um, the area of drug delivery is something that really happened in, in graduate school. So after Queens, I went on to the University of California, Berkeley to do my PhD. And the system's a bit different there in the US in that you get accepted into a program and then you join a particular lab after you go there. So as I said, I was interested in this idea of developing drugs to treat disease, um, but something that caught my interest when I was visiting different groups in graduate school and you know, exploring in the different group meetings was the, the project of my um, you know, would-be supervisor in the area of drug delivery. And you know, I think by that point, the small molecule drug development process seemed, at least to me at the time, as kind of a worked out process, you know, where you'd follow this systematic series of steps to define a target, develop small molecule inhibitors, vary the structure. And the drug delivery field was kind of just developing really at that stage. So I thought it was an exciting area and I, and I got involved in that. And then in terms of how I ended up in academia. Um, actually, I think when I started graduate school, I, I was intending maybe to go and work in a pharmaceutical company or something, but I, I just liked a lot the academic environment. Um, I think the main difference maybe between working in academia and industry is that if you work in industry, the company sort of defines the problem that you're working on. Whereas in academia, you you have a bit more independence and you know flexibility in, in doing that. and. So I liked that aspect. I liked collaborating with other groups, which I did in graduate school as well. I like the interdisciplinary environment of academia. You know, the fact that we are doing fairly, you know, hardcore science and engineering work, but we can interact or like chair a thesis of an English student one day. And, and so I kind of like that exposure to, to different areas. Um, so I like the flexibility. I like the fact that the timing, time, is flexible. I can come in and of course I have some structured things, but I can kind of decide what I'm doing each day, set my own goals and, and timelines. And I don't know, for me, that's something I enjoy and I, it's rewarding for, for my career. And, and I like working with students as well. I think students are, you know, always an excited, um, enthusiastic group of people. And, you know, again, always changing the, the students come, they graduate. And I like to see that evolution process. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think for a lot of us, we don't really know the beauty of like working in research and academia kind of like past that initial stage that we can only see up to so far, right, in terms of like, we just kind of like have exposure to our professors. And that's kind of like a lot of what we see through academia. So it's really nice to know that there's like this sense of community and that it's so interdisciplinary. I think that's awesome. So we also noticed that you're teaching a few other courses related to organic and polymer chemistry, as well as biological macromolecules. So what is your pedagogical philosophy and what are your opinions on professors integrating their research projects in the classes that they teach? Yeah, I mean, I, I would come back again to the problem solving, I think. I mean, you know, university, it, it's, um, I think, designed maybe to set students up with a kind of background knowledge in a certain area, but but more importantly, the ability to solve problems. Because I think the problems that we're going to encounter in real life are you know, not likely to be the exact same problems that are on a midterm exam ever or something like that. Um, so it's about having the tools and the strategy and gaining experience, I think, with problem solving. I think we do need a certain baseline knowledge um, in an area to be able to do that. I, I think, um, 
you know, we need to know how to look up the right information, right? And so if you're totally non-expert in an area, it becomes challenging to discriminate between good and bad information. And so I think, you know, our, our job in universities is to provide a certain baseline knowledge, but again, more importantly, being able to apply that knowledge to, to solve problems. And so I, I try to incorporate that into my, my class. And I think thinking critically as well is key in education. Um, probably also working with people to, you know, in teams. And so often we do incorporate that in our, in our courses. And, and another thing I'm quite passionate about as well is communication. So I think, you know, we can have all the knowledge and skills, but if we can't communicate them, then it becomes hard to really action that knowledge, right? So I also have taught a graduate communications course and, and I, can, I also incorporate that giving presentations and things into undergraduate courses. Um, in terms of research, yeah, absolutely. I think it's nice when we can showcase that for undergraduates, because as you mentioned, you, you don't always see the whole research operation behind the scenes, you know, when you're sitting in undergrad classes. So I've taught first year chemistry and I try whenever it's possible to bring in the concepts, you know, like how, how do kinetics and thermodynamics actually play into these self-immolative degradable polymers. So I do that there. In the fourth year course I taught, I, I encourage, well, it is, it's an assignment. I guess students look up research papers from the literature and present them. And, and so, yeah, absolutely. I think we want to get undergraduates involved in research and thinking about research. And it allows us to keep our curriculum modern as well, because let's face it, a lot of the core concept stuff is, has been around a long time, at least in, in a field like chemistry or, or chemical engineering. So yeah, it keeps things modern and, and exciting, I think. Totally, 100% agree. I think it's going to be very beneficial for students to have a well mix of various toolkits, for example, like you mentioned, communication, theoretical background, but as well as the ability to readily apply and adapt into uh, different scenarios. So our last question for today is that we, we know that the majority of our audiences are undergraduate students aspiring to work in the field of biomedical and biotechnology. And um, also, as you mentioned earlier, the one thing that really prompts you into the uh, drug discovery is how you, you know, learn about the research application of the uh, drugs in neurological disease and that has, that's how it kind of got you interested. So I would imagine that's the same case for a lot of students as well because in courses they might have more limited opportunity to be exposed to the outside room of the different research projects. And one of the best way for them to sort of be exposed is to join a summer research position. So as a PI of the lab, so do you have any tips or advice on how to find a research position as an undergraduate student? Yeah, so I think many of us as faculty really see the importance of getting undergrads engaged in research, and, and we try to do that to the fullest extent that we can. I would say in a chemistry type of lab, there are some limits on that because we need to think about safety considerations. And, um, you know, so we're not just going to like throw someone in the lab and say, hey, go, go for it, mix some chemicals together. So we want to make sure we have a strong mentoring and supervision structure in place. And so, you know, the number of trainees we can take is, is not unlimited, which I think, yeah, that's not just me, but also many of my colleagues in the area. Um, but we do definitely try to take as many undergrads as possible. I would say, if you want to get involved in research, taking a, a program that has a fourth year thesis project is a great way to ensure that you'll be able to get involved in research because we definitely have to 
prioritize, you know, students that are registered in these courses because it's part of the program. So, so every year I take two or three thesis students in my group. And then, as you mentioned, the summer is another great opportunity. And so I would encourage students to watch for the different undergraduate training programs that are around. So for example, NSERC has a program called the USRA, the Undergraduate uh, Student Research Assistantship, I think it stands for. And so if you watch for those and then try to connect with PIs to apply for one of those, that can be a great opportunity. There are also a number of training programs like Answer Creates that often involve undergraduates. And, and you know, again, these programs help to basically fund the salary part. So, so that's beneficial to both the student and the, and the, the principal, the investigator, the group leader. Um, another thing that I think undergrads could do is actually you know, connect with the, your teaching assistants. Because when I take students into the lab, I mean, it, it really is often the graduate students that are helping to train and work and work with the undergraduates and mentor them. And, and so to a large extent, our ability to take undergraduates is, you know, based on our enthusiasm, the enthusiasm of our graduate students to, to work with the undergraduates. So if you do have TAs in, in your courses, it would be interesting to talk to them about what their research is on and whether there could be opportunities in their research group, you know, and you might be able to work with them, for example. So, so that can be a great way to do it um, and to get past the, you know, I think we all try to respond to emails that we get, but many of us do get a lot of emails and sometimes things slip by. So if you, yeah, if you have a direct connection to a lab through a TA, for example, this can be, be nice, but yeah, don't hesitate to, to contact your your professors and you know many professors do respond to email and even if they tell you sorry I can't take more people at the moment they may still keep your, your name in mind and and again I think the chances of of you know getting a position and being prioritized kind of increase as you move through the years because we recognize it it's an important component to to get as part of your education and and it's, it can also be ideal if you've got some of the undergraduate lab courses done, then you have some basic skills that you can also apply in the lab. Okay, thank you so much for your invaluable advice on how students can get involved in research. I'm sure our audience will benefit a lot from our discussion today. With that, we would like to close this episode and thank you so much again for spending this wonderful morning with us at Biotech Podcast. Thank you.